Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay episode with the brilliant Sophie Hayward. I've followed Sophie for years. I've loved her columns. I've loved her celebrity interviews. She's written for The Guardian, Vice, Vogue. Her brilliant newsletter is called The Sophist. If you type her name into Google, you will read so many brilliant interviews that she's done with some of the biggest names. In this episode, we discuss her first book called The Hungover Games, a beautiful memoir about single motherhood. I love that in the blurb, she says what to expect expect when you weren't expecting to be expecting. I read it in a day. I just gobbled it up. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please do go and grab a copy of the book and also leave a rating or review if you fancy it. Hope you enjoy. I've been waiting to do this literally since that first bookseller announcement. And every time I see you I'm like, when, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? I was probably very annoying. <laughs> no, you were very encouraging. It was lovely, this idea that you were waiting to read my book that I hadn't probably finished writing yet. And the weirdest thing is you probably spent a long time writing it as anyone does writing a book. And then I literally read it in a day. And I've been hearing that feedback from a lot of people that your writing is so addictive. And I think Dolly Alderton described it recently as a salty snack that you can't put down. And it really, I just want to tell you how how wonderful it was to read. And I just raced through it. It's brilliant. I mean, you've hit the nail on something I think quite interesting for me, which is that, yes, this book, I thought it would take me maybe, you know, six months to a year. And it was at least twice that, really. I mean, I was doing other things as well, obviously. But um, people have very kindly said to me, oh, my God, I read it so fast. This is people who've got proof copies. And um it is sort of bittersweet. You think, well, there's no greater compliment than somebody saying, oh, I picked your book up thinking I'd just read two chapters. And next thing you know, it's four in the morning, you know, and you've read the whole thing. It's thrilling. But you do think, gosh, three years of work for one night of someone's life. But um, it's a bit like being pregnant. You know, you spend almost a year being pregnant and, you know, giving birth is sort of one day. It's quite feels imbalanced somehow. Because I feel like the book is written in such a way as well that it's not like it's loads of cliffhangers or anything but the way that you've written it is like okay right on to the next chapter I've got I've got to go through this and I wondered is that something that you did learn through your years of journalism that when you write an article especially with your celebrity profiles you do need to keep a reader sort of hooked right till the end don't you yeah it's absolutely that and I'll tell you what it is my dad is about 87 now and has bought the Guardian you know had it delivered every day of his life since he's 20. So we're talking an absolute lifelong, half a century loyalty to reading the entire newspaper every day. Now, as you know, The Guardian has got quite a lot of content that's skewed a bit young, a bit cool. They've got G2, they've got the music section, you know, they're quite into um, very contemporary sort of political debate. So you'll have loads and loads of stuff in The Guardian that means nothing to my dad. You know, some grime act from East London. He's interested But he's an 87-year-old man in Yorkshire. He's never heard of this stuff. So when I was brought in to write for The Guardian years ago to do quite sort of, you know, for want of a better word, sort of cool and trendy, you know, youth stuff, I always thought, well, the people reading this possibly aren't paying for The Guardian. My dad's been a loyal customer for 50 years. He's not reading it online for free. You know, I want him to be able to get to the end of this article, even if he never sees a film this actress has been in, in this thing I'm talking about, Hollywood or whatever it is, this band he's never going to go and see play a gig in Camden. I want there to be something in it for him 
to get to the end of the article. And that has served me quite well, I think. I always think I've got to get a person who, you know, is reading my profile with Stella McCartney, but genuinely hasn't heard of Stella McCartney's clothes, doesn't understand, doesn't care about the Beatles. You know, even at a level like that, I've got to get you to not put my article down until you've got to the end of it. Mm. Oh my God, he must have been so proud that you had a column in the, in the newspaper that he'd read his whole life. It's quite, it's quite a moment. Really, really proud. And what's funny is, as a child, much as my dad is a very nice, you know, person you can have a, a lovely conversation with, every morning I'd come to the breakfast table and he would have, you know, the full-size Guardian physical thing. And when I was a kid, it was bigger than the current page size. And I would sit sort of staring at the back of his newspaper not seeing his head and you know sometimes as a teenager you think why don't my parents listen to me why does nobody understand me why are they so concerned with things that aren't you know the fabulously interesting thing that is Sophie Hayward and I did years later think oh I know what I've done now I've gone into the world and made it so even if he's not looking at me at the table because his head's in the Guardian he has to hear what I'm saying so I think it was a way to sort of like like literally every morning of my childhood the guardian was there so i do think you know a therapist would have a field day with that yeah that will never ever go away yeah. <laughs> um but talking about the guardian in i think it was 2015 16 you wrote this amazing piece about raising a child by yourself and it went viral and I think every single person on the planet read it. And I wondered, was that the catalyst for the book or were you always wanting to write about this amazing topic that you know so much about? It's funny. I only did that column for a year and it was coming to the end of the year's contract. And I knew this was going to be one of my last sort of clutch of columns. And I think I thought, you know, I've always wanted to try and write about being a single mother. And I had touched on it in that column through the year. But I suppose I'd always thought, oh, one day I'll write like the definitive thing I want to say on this subject but of course that's impossible so you just keep hedging around it and you keep thinking oh, I'll do it next I'll do it next week and then when it really was the end of the column I was a bit like right here we go I'm going to really say what I want to say about what it's actually like having a baby on your own but I only had 800 words to do so so I sort of drafted it and redrafted it and ended up sending it in a day late because I just really really cared and it did work, you know, it did touch a lot of people and I do still get asked about it. And it did lead to various publishers getting in touch. And I think I already had an agent, but we'd just been sort of throwing ideas around. We hadn't really got anywhere. It did lead to that really building up. And I still didn't actually sign the book deal for another, maybe another couple of years after that. I think I wanted a bit more space from it because my daughter was still quite young. I didn't want to be like, here's a book about single parenting by someone who's been doing it for sort of 36 months. Do you know what I mean? I wanted to have a bit more kind of experience. But yes, that column did lead to this book, I would say. Because mm. I wondered as well, I know you've probably been asked this before, but that line between writing the truth, writing a memoir, which is obviously crafted and is a skill. And I love that there is a boundary actually in your book. I think there's a few moments where you kind of say to the reader, I'm not going to say any more than this, but it's enough. I felt very satisfied reading it, but I, I, there was a line there and I really liked that as well. With that sort of line of memoir and people in real life reading it, did you have that reservation of, will your daughter one day read the book? Absolutely. And that's, a, that's you know, one part of the reason why it took me longer to write than I thought it would, because there's so much 
at stake when you're writing a you know sort of the truth of your life and you know your private life some of it's my sex life and you know how that relates to me having a child and being a single mum it's really personal stuff and I don't mind of course I don't mind sharing that stuff I've chosen to live as a writer I'm you know I'm the sort of person who will always tell my friends everything that's going on sort of no holds barred the problem with writing a book which is not some historical novel about some people in you know Venice in the 17th century it's about real other people who are still alive and you know somebody might read the book and say oh actually you know I think you've gone quite a long way here and then somebody else might say oh you haven't you know you could have said much more than that so we find our own line don't we but yes there are other people's lives mentioned in the book and I think it's for their privacy that I don't go I think if it was really just me have <laughs> sort of you know have to get a restraining order against myself I think I would I would say anything <laughs> That's so funny because I, I, my first book was quite personal, but I changed all the names of the ex-boyfriends and all the rest of it. You know, the whole legal process is quite funny, isn't it? Well, you have to cover all the, cover people's backs. But I was, um, whilst I was reading it, I was like, I wonder how Sophie found reading the audiobook for this because there are parts of it that are just like so funny and so honest and so like going slightly bright red reading it. Yeah, it's funny because you know, there were some kind of, you know, you're probably hinting at kind of sex scenes or things like that. There were some moments where, of course, you know, you, you think, oh, you know, all these years writing to impress my dad. Well, actually, you know, please, for the love of God, mum, dad, don't read this bit about um, giving a Harry Krishna monk a blowjob. <laughs> but um, I thought, you know, I sort of spent my years working out, you know, my deal with the devil and how to just, you know, boldly plough ahead. And it turns out, None of that is as embarrassing as standing in an audio recording booth in a studio in central London with, you know, central London, so space is at a premium. So the audio booth was very small and the sound engineer was kind of on the other side of the glass. We were both in a a room about the size of an armchair, each divided by glass. And he, the whole way through the book, he was this lovely young Irish guy, really nice. He had to keep stopping me and saying, oh, you just, you know, you said that word constitution, you swallowed constitution. Can you just say that bit again? Or, oh, that last bit just, you know, I didn't quite catch that. Or actually, you know, there's one bit for for some random reason I have to mention Papua New Guinea. And he was like, oh, I think it's Papua New Guinea. So we got used to all this, you know, bit. And then there was one bit where he had to say to me, oh, sorry, stop. You swallowed blowjob. And I just And then he made me go back. And obviously that passage, I was so embarrassed. I'd kind of raced through it. So which made it worse because I then had to repeat that passage more than anything else. And we had to go back and back and something about the taste of sperm in my mouth. I I then realised this is why people don't put this in their books. You have to stand in a recording studio and say it again and again, like ritual humiliation. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, because I feel like when it's written down, at least it can be a little bit like, okay, I'll forget I've written that now. In the recording studio, they had a fridge full of like snacks, like cans of drinks and stuff to sort of keep you going. And they also had all these jars of Haribo. And I'm not a big sweet eater, but, you know, I was getting a bit nervous. So I was sort of eating all these, you know, sort of gummy sweets. And the more I had to do this scene, I was getting like higher and higher. (laughs) So I was on this mad sugar rush by the end of it. It was quite strange. And then I think London lockdown happened something like 
the next day. So like as I left the recording studio, got on, you know, sort of the last bus out of Dodge, the streets of London are suddenly empty and I'm like really high on sweets on my own, just feeling really crazy. Well, if that's not selling the audiobook to the listeners right now, I don't know what is. I mean, you have to listen to it now. But the book is split into two sections. You've got London, no, you've got LA and then you've got London. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your your love affair with with LA because it's so clear in the book that you have such a deep kind of relationship with with the place yeah so I uh, grew up in Yorkshire in a fairly you know sort of normal British town not particularly exciting and then I moved to London to go to university and stuck around afterwards as lots of people do and I became a celebrity interviewer. I don't mean I became a celebrity, but I interview sort of pop stars and rock stars and sometimes film actors and directors and, oh, an author or even a politician, just public figures. And the recession hit journalism and other industries in about 2008. There was the big financial crash. And so you couldn't, none of the papers or magazines or sort of companies could fly you out to LA anymore. The celebrities were still there in LA plugging their stuff, needing interviewing. The newspapers still had gaps in the pages for that, but there wasn't really the budget to fly freelancers around. So I, it was one of those rare plans in life that went really well. I thought if I can get a work visa and base myself in LA, maybe I'll get all this work that is still there. And it worked. But the reason I knew LA was because I'd been flown out there for interviews before. And it is the city that I think is most wrongly portrayed in the media. Everybody's heard of Los Angeles and Hollywood. Everyone, in, you know, you go to a, a small town in Africa. Everybody's heard of Hollywood. But I think I had thought it's going to be boob jobs. I know you have to have a car to drive around everywhere. I didn't drive. I still don't. It's going to be loads of makeup. It's going to be boob jobs. You know, I'm someone who barely wears any makeup. No interest in that kind of vanity surgery stuff and I don't like false people I quite like just telling the truth and chatting and having a laugh I like having a drink you know I don't go hiking and I got to LA and realized it was just this paradise of interesting people because it's a one industry town everybody whether they're a very highly paid film actor or a very poorly paid dog walker is doing something to facilitate the film industry so if you work in a bookshop in LA, your books are being sold to producers who are looking for new stories to turn into TV and film. And I think it's 80 to 90, I think it's 90% of all films, at least made in Hollywood, I can't speak the rest of the world, are based on books, whether that's nonfiction or novels. So there's a massive book culture in LA. It's got fantastic bookshops. It's got loads of poet readings. My best friend there, Mandy, is a poet. I made friends with high school teachers. I made friends with, you know, people who sort of volunteered with kids and shelters. I made friends with Hollywood agents who made, you know, 10 times as much money as the rest of us. But this was all one gang of friends I'm talking about. It's a really vibrant, thriving city that on some level, storytelling filters into all of it. I found it fascinating. Yes, I, I love seeing it through the eyes of, like even following your Instagram post because you do see the kind of realness of it and but then again in the book as well I feel like we see the behind the scenes of the like PR person with the clipboard as well <laughs> and that sort of Hollywood world of like protecting the the truth and I think that's what you're so great at and that's why people love your profiles is you bring kind of your your truth and heart and soul to the interviews and I feel like you crack people open a bit a bit more. Mm, thank you. 
you know, if someone, if a celebrity in an interview says something that you just think, oh God, wow, you know, that's quite an unlikely opinion to hold or, you know, that's quite naive or quite aggressive or whatever it is. I don't like to write in the piece. They said that, aren't they a fool? Or that's not my, you know, that must be the wrong opinion because my Sophie Hayward's opinion is another opinion. I don't like to push myself onto it too much, but I do like to let let their words speak for themselves. But it's taken years to master that because when I first got into journalism, I just wanted to write me, 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 me. And everybody a bit more older and experienced and was like, for God's sake, you know, stop being such a narcissist. Just do the work. It's not about you. So I got into interviews and I didn't make them about me. And I sort of swung too far the other way. And I think it's taken really about 10 years to find that midpoint where my personality and humour comes across. But it's not an article about Sophie Hayward. It's an article about this rock star. Two of the chapters I really like, and I love them all, but you kind of weave in these almost like behind the scenes experiences with some of the celebrities. And I think what makes it so... So exciting and, and funny, this book, is you've got the, I guess, the contrast between like London's and Piss Alley, you call it. And yeah. then you've got like the Chateau Marmont. And in the depths of some of your despair, you're sat in front of Goldie Horn or Jodie Foster yeah. or someone who on paper has it all together. And you do find pieces of inspiration from these women, which is really lovely in the book. And I love celebrities and I never want to be bigger than that you know there's people in my family who have sort of been you know Cambridge academics and things like that are much better educated than me people and I sometimes think god they must think it's a bit funny that I've devoted my life to sort of celebrity culture you know you can be a bit snooty about celebrity culture but I haven't gone off it ever my relationship with it changes but I still want to know what Madonna thinks about anything I want to know what Madonna thinks about getting an Ocado order and I want to know what she thinks about Black Lives Matter you know I want to know everything that Madonna has to say I think it's fascinating and I remain gripped and what was fun in the book because when I've written up you know as you say there's a bit in the book where I go and interview Jodie Foster and one where I do um, Goldie Horn, and I think there's another celebrity interview as well and you know, what I couldn't reveal in those newspaper profiles when I wrote them for the Sunday Times or whoever it was, was quite, you know, as you said, the extent of my own personal chaos that I was sort of bringing to the table at that time. But I was able to revisit it in the book. I mean, I'm slightly worried about when the book comes out. You know, the lawyers at Penguin Random House have been through it all and we've checked the transcripts of the interviews and checked who owns the copyright and, you know, it's all been thoroughly legal and it's fine. But... I don't know, you know, what Goldie Horn's going to say when she sees, you know, my depiction of how she tried to help me through a meltdown I had whilst interviewing her. I mean, also, you know, I still, you know, much as I've written a book and you get paid for that and it's lovely, you know, I still will probably remain in work as a celebrity interviewer, unless all my editors from the different papers I now freelance for see this book and go, oh my God. But you've but it's in such a positive light, I suppose. So in, in a way, at least that it's kind of slants that way, if you know what I mean. Makes you just love Goldie Horn even more. Oh, I mean, how could you not? How could you not love Goldie Horn? Yeah, and actually, Jodie Foster comes. You know, she was brilliant. I mean, I'm not, I've not put people in the book to slag them off. But it's funny what you just said about celebrity culture and how people do sometimes kind of quite snooty about it when actually 
so all celebrities are sometimes is like a reflection of our lives and the reason we want to talk about a couple breakup or a couple getting back together or a divorce or it's like that's because we're going through all that stuff and it's we're able to hold a mirror up a little bit we are and also what we really like is seeing really wealthy people have problems that money can't fix so you know we we in our slightly more humble lives you know go through divorces and all that kind of stuff. But there's, for some reason, you sort of think, yeah, but if I had a massive house in Beverly Hills, I wouldn't have to deal with this shit. But you will, you will. I'm not saying the massive house isn't hugely helpful. You know, I think money speaks volumes. But the bit we love the most is when, you know, she's got the house and she's still on her third divorce and she couldn't make it work and neither can I. I suppose we're seeing that in lockdown, aren't we, as well? You know, obviously lockdown is going to be nicer if you've got a pool and a mansion. But at the same time, we're all still fighting the same battle during at the moment. I mean, you are seeing some famous people start to go on, you know, Saturday night at midnight Twitter rants and you think, oh, it's not going so well in your house, is it? People are unravelling. Yeah. A funny thing is, back to Madonna, when she had her first child, Lord is... Leon, who must be sort of 20-odd now. I remember she was interviewed in Vanity Fair, I think, and she was sat with her then three-year-old daughter and her ex-personal trailer, Carlos Leon, the dad, and they were sort of trying to do the modern family thing of making it work, you know. Don't think they were getting on great, but they'd taken their kid out for brunch. And Madonna said, you know, these people at the table were just staring at me, staring at me, like, you know, because they had like a mum and a dad and two nice kids and I'm there with my ex-trainer and our child, you know. She said, I just looked at them and thought, okay, well, what would you do? How would you make this work? And I thought, God, it's interesting. Madonna sits there in a restaurant feeling embarrassed that she doesn't quite know how to make her family work. And that stayed with me for such a long time. And I then became the single mum. Obviously, people aren't staring at me in the same way. But I have sat in, you know, Pizza Express with me and my little girl. And I've tried and tried to sort of make it in my head that we are a whole family and you look at the next table and there's the mum and the dad and the three kids celebrating a birthday. And um, Madonna's words come back to me and they save me. <laughs> I love that because it exactly sums up how we all feel, which is, are we doing it right? And even Madonna thinks that. And what you don't know is that the family of five at the next table, the mum is sat there thinking, I should have divorced this guy years ago. <laughs> You know, yes, he's turned up tonight because it's her effing birthday. Well, where's he been the past two months of her having a crisis at school? You know, we don't know what's going through their heads. In terms of the, you know, the theme, I guess, of being a single mum and and how to make that work. And I think you mentioned this in the book, actually, of how it could have really helped you and might help others to have more representation in the media, in films, in TV where where are these stories? I mean, I feel like this is the first time I've read this type of story, but it, you can't be the only one. <laughs> well, I sort of thought, you know, when my daughter was getting to the reading books age, you know, sort of two and three and four and five, I was thinking, okay, I'll go and buy out all those groovy books about, you know, different families that I know now surely exist because we've been talking about this for years. You know, where's the single parent kids? Where's the lesbian mums? You know, where's the mixed race family? Where's all the stuff that wasn't in the books that I read as a kid? And it still wasn't there. I was mind blown. I was going around the bookshops going, this is weird. And because my work still sometimes sends me back to America, I found Brooklyn, you know, in part of New, part of New York, 
was the best place to get, you know, Brooklyn is probably the most right on place of all. So in Brooklyn, I was getting great books about, you know, like a black single mum and her daughter. And they were the closest I found to our experience, which is great, but also ridiculous. You know, I'm a white middle class woman from Yorkshire. And I'm not saying my, you know, experience on many levels is at all similar to a black mum in Brooklyn. But that was the closest I could get to the shape of a family that was the same shape as my family. And it was brilliant to read that anyway. I'm not saying I only want to read about people like me. But um, there is a real paucity of stuff. And what broke my heart was that as soon as my daughter was old enough to play with little, you know, Playmobil, Lego dollies herself and be like, this is the this person. As soon as she got to that age, every single game she invented had a mummy and a daddy and the two kids. I mean, every single game. She, it's, it's telly as well. She got it from Peppa Pig and things like that. And the kids down the street who tend to have a more nuclear mm-hmm. setup. But um, she's never, I've never seen her write a story involving a single parent family. Never seen her build a Lego house for a single parent family. Mm. And that's why this book, I think, is so is so needed. Like the, the chapter that you write about when you went on a first date and you were still breastfeeding. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people are going through that where where is that in our in our culture and 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 I wondered I mean do you think and maybe this is a bigger question but I do feel like in this modern world there's a lot of women I I I I've seen out there who are definitely going at it alone very like on purpose wanting to do it alone intentional sort of single mums going with a sperm donor or yeah. whatever it is or a friend or a gay friend yeah sure I mean my best friend from school is literally just has just given birth you know to her first child which she's done through a donor and she had to travel to different countries to have treatment and it takes various attempts yeah I mean it's funny when I go to certain parts of America like in LA if I say oh no it's just me and my daughter in the family single parent family they'll go oh yeah donor donor and I'm like no not a donor I did get pregnant the sort of old-fashioned accidental way as is explained in my book but you know it's funny nobody in England has ever said to me oh yeah donor baby but um in other parts of the world it's much more common and expected it's interesting you know I I did think when my daughter was younger I'm not going to have any more kids now but I did think oh should I have a second child and I still you know you sort of think my god I finally had the baby I'm not still going to have this question of should I should I use a sperm donor should I talk to a gay friend who maybe has always wanted to have you know his own family as well I was a bit like my god you've got a three-year-old and you're still going through this dilemma and it's funny I still weighed up the options in my head and I you know it's not and I think what hopefully my book shows is that I didn't become somebody who had all the answers you know I don't necessarily want to be the poster girl for single mums or for intentional one parent families in that I mean I'd be thrilled to be but it's you know my life has been a sort of series of happy disasters and I don't you know I don't necessarily know what the answer is. Yeah that that's really interesting because I, I don't think anyone should just be the poster person for um for a movement or for a trend or for a lifestyle it's like why do we pin that pin that responsibility on so many women but i did think the book is so it's so joyful as well because i think as well it was for someone who isn't sure whether she wants children which i don't i just don't know i i really enjoyed reading you know like you knew you wanted you did know that you wanted a child but what was funny is that nobody else knew that I wanted a child. In fact, when people found out that I was accidentally pregnant, they weren't massively shocked. But when they found out I was keeping it, they were really shocked. So it's funny as well. I mean, is that... 
do we look at women in a certain way like oh she's not maternal you know she's going out and having you know because I was having a good time I was going to parties I was getting drunk I mean I'm not saying you can uphold that lifestyle as a mum you can't to do justice to your child you do have to change but the idea you know I was always a very friendly very sociable very sort of you know huggable person so to my mind you know, I was great at playing with friends, children. I'm really imaginative. I love making up stories and being silly and puns and all these things. And I always cared about society. So why did none of my friends think I could be maternal? You know, what does that mean? I find that quite interesting. Yes, so, so interesting. Well, like you show in the book, there's not one way of doing anything. No, there's not one way of and that's, doing anything. And that's what I love is is this thirst for experience and life and travel and stories and it's like what Catelyn Moran has always said that there's no there's no such thing as failure really like anything that goes wrong just makes a really good anecdote (laughs) and I do love that I think Russell Brand once said um my life has basically been a series of humiliating incidents uh woven together by the retelling of those (laughs) humiliating incidents I think I think my book could arguably be described as such But um, what's funny is friends of mine who were much more organised, you know, all through my 20s, I did sort of think, oh, you know, where's that person I'll have a kid with? And I didn't have a child till my mid 30s. But friends of mine in their 20s, girlfriends of mine who were much, and I'm talking about sort of straight women who were much more like, I want to get married. I want to you know, have a ring on my finger. I want to buy a house. I want to have a baby within two to three years. The kind of five year plan friends who... I seem to have a lot of, I think, because I'm so different from them and people feed off, you know, people, organised people want their crazy friend and the crazy person needs a sort of sane, sober person to, you know, be saved by. Yeah. So I've got quite a lot of close girlfriends who are much more grounded and organised than me. And actually that level of control when you've planned it out, I think what having a baby brings to anybody is a loss of control and you have to sort of surrender to that and if you can't surrender to it and you keep trying to control and there's screaming as there's vomit and there's a schedule that that has gone out the window and your relationship with your partner might be going into difficult strange territory that you never saw coming and your sense of yourself is sort of collapsing overnight I was kind of okay with all that stuff I'd never expected to have any control anyway and I'd never expected to wake up the same person the next day who I had been the day before and I didn't know what I was doing in five years anyway. I would say women with more control over their lives have possibly found parenting harder than I have. Yeah, it's, I think the loss of control thing actually is very comforting to watch. To watch someone just go with the flow of life, it's quite contagious. I think you kind of want to be more, I want to be more like that. And I think what's shown us this year, 2020, the year of absolute hell, is that none of us can plan anything anyway. Yeah, and this has been a year where a lot of people, you know, everyone's five-year plan is out the window now. Everyone's had to surrender and, you know, nobody's been able to do the thing. And I did the start of lockdown. I mean, I'm not saying I found it easy or that I found parenting easy. My God, I'm not suggesting I'm someone who's got it all together. But about the first month of lockdown when people around me were really suffering, and I was really suffering, you know, we were all all fighting our own demons. But um, I was a bit like, oh, it's this again. Because being at home on your own with a newborn baby and no partner and at the time I had her you know I moved back from America a few months before giving birth so all my old social groups in London had kind of moved on so I didn't have like all my best friends there on the doorstep and I had to rent a new place in a different part of town where I hadn't lived before it was all sort of circumstantial so the first year of my daughter's life 
came flooding back to me during the coronavirus lockdown. So many memories came flooding back and I was like, okay, I know that we can do this. We can just do it. I, I wonder if how I wonder how many people are feeling weirdly kind of um, like a, a, a thicker layer of skin. You know, we're going to look back and think, oh my God, we got through that. That is amazing. We can kind of get through anything then. Yeah. As cheesy as that sounds. Well, I'm so excited for this book to come out next oh. month. I mean, how how are you feeling launching a book in lockdown? I mean, I've I've been asked that over and over, but I I'm really curious. Well, to, how are to you feeling? What... <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm feeling I am feeling disappointed because I had lo- loads of lovely events lined up, as I'm sure you did, and like meeting readers is kind of part of the the joy of it. But I think it's going to reach people in a new way, and I think this book is going to definitely reach people. And I think people need books and escapism more than more than ever so it's a good time for it to come out i think it's a great time and i've noticed that people i mean i share all your concerns i've noticed that you know we're speaking at a time when the shops normal shops are just about to start opening now and i've noticed loads of excitement about bookshops opening i think i've had more people talk about bookshops opening than clothes shops maybe because there's a bit of an issue with trying the clothes on with a book you just take it but, um, you know, I feel that people are really excited. People are saying, oh, I just want to browse. I don't want to go on, you know, a website. I just want to stand there and, like, look at 50 different book covers. And I thought, well, that's going to be quite nice for my book to come out at a time when people maybe aren't going to go to a gig that night. They're not able to go to a nightclub. You know, there's no live music. That kind of stuff is still locked down. So the one exciting trip out they can maybe have is to go to somewhere like Waterstones. And then they come home that evening and, you know, hoping the restaurants and the pubs are still shut so they don't have to read my <laughs> that evening. But yeah, and I guess, you know, people aren't planning big summer holidays. I mean, we still don't know, but, you know, lots of people have run out of money and they're going to be stuck at home, whatever. So I do think it could be a great time for a book to come out. If all I you've agree. got is bookshops and sitting in the house, ideal. Well, because like, I read your book right at the beginning of lockdown when I was struggling the most. And I actually started my book club that week because I realised how much books were saving me and my mental health. And obviously, I'm not the only person who was struggling with that depart- in that department. But I read your book during a really, really anxious week. And I loved it because I was in LA with you. I was in London with you. I was going to the pub. <laughs> I was like in your world. And because you really take the reader into your life and it was a real experience i just everyone needs to read it oh emma i'm thrilled i'm thrilled to hear that you went to all those places with me that's a really it's so strange the power of language because you just got that from some paper seriously but it's lovely to talk to you and i love control out delete how fun to be on it good luck with the the book launch and yeah hopefully um it goes into as many readers hands as as possible but yeah thank you amazing thank you emma